0: Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today, Charles Chuck Maroon joins us on the porch to talk about his latest book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, and his work for strong towns. We'll discuss the driving forces behind our current transportation system and what is needed for improvement. So, pull off the interstate of life and pull up a chair for a fascinating conversation about the ways we all get around. Chuck Marone, welcome to the Front Porch Republic and the Brass Platoon Podcast. Thanks, John. It's nice to be here. So first, the question that we ask all of our guests: What does home mean to you?
1: Oh, well, that's particularly pertinent to me because I've been traveling a lot lately. I mean, I've kind of dedicated my life to this place, uh, Brainerd, Minnesota. I've had many opportunities to leave, and I've I've kept coming back. It's uh, not only the city where I was born and raised, but You know, I grew up on the farm that my great great grandparents uh, homesteaded. Uh, There's a little road in the neighboring city called Marone Road where my grandparents and uh, I lived there for a little bit till we moved to the farm. You know, my wife and I met in junior high at the very school that I'm sitting in right now where I've got my professional studio. And uh, it's just a lot of depth and rootedness. So for me, home is is this place that I deeply identify with that really is me and I a reflection of it in a way that, you know, goes beyond kind of the superficial layout of things and and really gets into the essence and the soul of, of who I am as a person and and who the people around me are in communion with that.
0: And do you describe Brainerd as a strong town? And what is, (laughs) what is a strong town?
1: No, it's a, it's a really good question. No, no, I, I think Brainerd in some ways, I mean, there's strong towns, the, the, the noun, the thing, right. And Brainerd is, is far from that. You know, as I think most cities are far from that, but there's strong towns, the practice, are we becoming a better place? Are we working at the, the kind of hard work of together building this place. And I think Brainerd has gone from, you know, a zero on that scale to a, a two or a three over the last few years we're, we're we're working it, we're getting better. There's a lot of our practices that I think have improved. And I think we're, we're on a path that will get us there. It's a little like saying, are you a Catholic? <laughs> I'm a Catholic, uh, but am I a Catholic? I don't know. I mean, I, there's a lot of the practices that I struggle with Maybe it's like, am I a good Catholic? I don't know. I'm working at it. I think Brainerd is a nice place that is working at it. Let's put it that way. And tell
0: us a little bit broadly about the organization you founded, Strong Towns, and the history behind that.
1: Well, Strong Towns is, uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, but I, I think the important thing about us is that we're working to make our cities strong and resilient. I recognized back in the early 2000s, as we were in the middle of the housing boom and and run up, that the projects that I was working on as a planner, as a civil engineer, were making the cities I was working for weaker. They were giving the city, in a sense, a sugar high of cash with a transaction in exchange for just an enormous long-term financial liability in terms of roads and streets and sidewalks and pipes and, and, and pumps and all the stuff that goes with building and development, it was this long-term liability that the city would have no capacity to actually make good on. We were, in a sense, robbing from future generations so that we could live a modestly better lifestyle today. And I started to document this and write this down. I started to put numbers to this and explain you know, why this was going on and why this was happening. And I I started to study things like economics and human psychology so that that I could fully grasp beyond just the rote kind of engineering, why this was taking place. In 2008, I started to write about that and those writings on a blog. I mean, we live in a magical time. You and I are doing a podcast. I did a blog. It was one of those things where all of a sudden these ideas that were really for me to try to figure this problem out in collaboration with a few professional colleagues, became something much bigger. And people started to read it and people started to share it and pass it around. And I started to get invited to come to different places and speak about these ideas. And pretty soon, a a foundation here in my home state of Minnesota actually invited me to come and meet with them and wound up as part of that conversation, giving me three years of startup money to leave my engineering practice and go figure out what Strong Towns would be. Strong Towns today is a primarily a media effort. Uh, we put uh, most of our efforts into sharing this message with as many people as we can, as broadly as we can. We, we publish articles, we do our own podcasts, we do a lot of video work. I travel around and give uh, lectures and talks and walking tours and all kinds of other things. And we have a, you know, active group of readers, mem- thousands of members. And then we've got now 110 local conversations, we call them, groups that are meeting in their communities across the U S trying to figure out how do we take these ideas and and apply them to our place so that we can have a stronger community a more prosperous place for everyone.
0: And as you mentioned, you have training in engineering. Your most recent book is called confessions of a recovering engineer. So as a recovering engineer, what are engineers good for and what are things that engineers are doing that should be left to others?
1: (laughs) So it's, that is actually a fantastic question because I think sometimes people want to take away from the book that, that engineers are somehow flawed or bad or, or themselves as, as a profession are, you know, inadequate. But the reality is, is that we just ask engineers to do things they're not good at. Engineers are really good at technical things. They're really good at telling you uh, how thick your pavement should be, where the water is going to drain what style of concrete mix you should use in a certain setting in a certain situation, how deep a pipe should be, what what the grade on that pipe should be, um, what volume of stormwater you should expect. These are all like technical things that technical people are really good at calculating, figuring out, and planning for. What engineers aren't good at, and I think it's important to recognize, are the deeply human things about building a place. What is someone's hopes and aspirations for the future? along the street. What are the needs of people living in this particular neighborhood? How do we balance things like mobility and access? How do we balance things like your ability to drive through somewhere quickly with the safety, kind of lifestyle priorities of the people who live there? These are more abstract things that engineers can put in a paradigm of, you know, transportation and kind of plow through. Uh, but really do a disservice to. And, uh, you know, these are the deep things that make us human. And when we're talking about our cities, when we're talking about places where we live, when we're talking about human habitat, those are the things that we need to prioritize. And those are the things that we should never give to an engineer to, in a sense, work their craft on.
0: And you open your book, your most recent book, which is focused largely on transportation issues. With a sketch of an engineer uh, bringing the good news, the gospel of a new road to a somewhat skeptical local resident. As I was reading that, I, I had thoughts of the old Saturday Night Live sketch with Steve Martin asking, Now who's the barber? Right, right If you remember that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What are some of the things you had to do when you were in that role that you now look back on and and hang your head over?
1: This was... One of the kind of early things at Strong Towns that were a, a real breakthrough for me. I had, when I first started writing for Strong Towns, I was running my own practice. I had an engineering planning firm here in central Minnesota. And I had spent the week, it was, I remember Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, it was four different times. I was on different projects in different meetings, and I was working with an engineer. And I was in the role of planner, and the engineer was saying things that were just patently absurd, just very frustrating. Despite conversations, despite ongoing dialogue, I was not able to move the needle on any of them very much. And so I got to the office on a Thursday night, and I'm a night person, so I I tend to get a lot of momentum and and do a lot of my writing at night. I sat down, and there was this uh, program called Extra Normal. That allowed you to create dialogues between like animatronic bears, so it's like cartoon bears having this conversation. And I sat down and in about an hour and a half, wrote out what ended up to be like an eight and a half, eight and a half minute dialogue between an engineer and the person who they were going to chat with. And I, I did this, you know. Uh, sometimes you you do things that you put a lot of love and effort and energy into and you think are brilliant and nobody cares and nobody reads it and no nobody it doesn't end up going anywhere and then sometimes you throw something together in just a fit of uh, of you know confusion and, and it winds up to look like sheer brilliance and and this is one of those things because when you listen to this conversation the engineer and the person like talk themselves in circles. The, the whole time the engineer is explaining in a very earnest engineering way, we have to widen this road. Why? Because there'll be more traffic. Well, why will there be more traffic? Because we're widening the road. Um, and it's a, it, it's, it, it is a, a conversation that unfortunately, many, many, many of us who work in city building have experienced with engineers in our lives. When I started this book, I took that conversation And I I didn't want to write this book as someone who was looking down on a profession outside of it. I wanted to uh, make sure that the reader understood that I was in the profession, that I had at one point in my career believed these things, had spoken these words, and that the words came very natural to me because they were part of a past former set of beliefs and so i i tried to explain as best i could to the reader why an engineer would actually believe these things what, what what is it that makes them you know think in this way my mom called me up after reading that introductory chapter and she said Chucky, I didn't really think you sounded like a very nice person there. And then I got to the end of the chapter and realized that you were, you know, she didn't use the word repenting. I can't remember the word she used, but you know, you were a changed man. And, and uh, I'm like, well, thanks, mom. That was the that was very good validation there. I, I think it's important for us to remember that engineers are good, decent people who uh, work in a profession that has its own doctrine, its own dogma, its own hero stories, and its own you know methodologies. And when you become an engineer, you are brought into that religion in some ways. You know, there's a four year apprenticeship you do before you can get your license. That is a, a time when all of these things are are brought to you and delivered to you, and, and kind of uh, you're asked to believe them all. I wanted people to see the humanity in that because the rest of the book is, is really hard on engineers and the engineering profession.
0: And engineers seem to have a need for speed. So what are some yeah. of the downsides of building this highway to the danger zone?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that at the end of World War II, as we were embarking on this project of, of building a new America and, and transforming a continent around a new set of ideas, the the central... Insight of that was that increased mobility would create increased prosperity. If you could get to more places, you had more employment opportunities, you had more consumption opportunities, people had more options to sell you things. And so embedded in the early days of the traffic engineering profession, which really is a profession that was born out of you know the, uh, the creation of the automobile, it's less the traffic engineering profession as a sub- set of engineering is a very young, young profession with practices that were developed in those first decades, you know, around World War II. The key kind of thing that came out of that was mobility. If we can increase mobility, we increase prosperity. Mobility is a function of the speed you can drive and the volume of vehicles we can move. And so what you see embedded in Every engineering design, every approach, whether it's for your little street in front of your place or for the interstate that connects you to you know, a neighboring community, engineers begin the design process with speed and volume of traffic. How fast can we move a set amount of cars? And that becomes, in a sense, like the limiting factor or the thing that we start out with that all other things are subservient to, including, in many ways, safety. Now, engineers will argue with that. They will say, well, we're building things that are very safe. And I think that if you are traveling in an automobile, that is largely true. We do build things that are quite safe for people who are, are driving. Not always. There's a lot of places where you, know, you combine high speeds with a, a certain degree of complexity where things get very dangerous for drivers. But for particularly for people outside of an automobile, people who walk, people who bike, which by the way, is all of us. I mean, every trip that you drive ends in a walking trip of some sort. You know, this environment is ridiculously dangerous. And I think the obsession with speed has made us overlook not only the safety implications of our designs, but also the you know the, the type of economy that you end up with when every trip is forced into being a high-speed, high-volume automobile trip. It changes the very nature of our neighborhoods. It changes the very nature of our places. And it changes the way we interact with each other economically. People who are frustrated with Amazon or big box stores or low wages and and, a bifurcated winner-take-all economy really are frustrated with the way Automobile transportation and, automo- and engineering around mobility has manifested itself over three generations of us doing it that way.
0: And so we opened with the question we ask everyone about home, but now a question only for you. Yeah. What does Strode mean to you?
1: <laughs> well, Strode was my attempt to describe something to my colleagues in the engineering profession that... You know, we didn't have a word for. Engineers use the word street and they use the word road interchangeably. They treat them the same. In fact, I like to point out the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which is probably the most widely used book by traffic engineers. It it says where you should put certain striping and signage and signals and all these different things that regulate the flow of traffic. And if you look up in that book the definition of a street, it will say street see highway. There's no discernment between that. There's a difference between the little local street out in front of your house that carries a couple hundred vehicles a day and the interstate that carries 200,000. And so clearly with most humans, you know, outside of the engineering profession, when we think of something as a street, we think of like the little street in front of our house. We think of a place. And when we think of a road, We're thinking of a a highway, like a replacement of the railroad, someplace where we can move very quickly or someplace that will will get us across distance. And so I I spent some time defining those and trying to be really clear and intentional about the difference. A, A street being a framework for building a place, a platform for building wealth and value and prosperity in a place, human habitat, and a road being the connection between places. For we're in one place and we want to get to another place, how do we get there? We get there on a road, a very efficient place where mobility does have a place in the part of the conversation. A Strode, then, is this hybrid of the two. It's a street road combination. And when I first coined this term, I would write it in all capital letters with the hopes that engineers who love acronyms would confuse it with an acronym. And would look it up to say like well i'm not familiar with this acronym what is this and then look it up and and get a definition um because it is the what we call the futon of transportation the you know a futon is an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed it tries to do two things at once and and kind of fails at both a strode tries to at one point create a place build something of wealth and value it fails at that It, it has enormous costs with very low financial returns. It's not very redeeming habitat to actually be in. But at the same time, it tries to move vehicles quickly. It tries to have highway scaled lanes, turning lanes, you know, traffic signals, and, and these things that are designed to make traffic flow very quickly. But anyone who's been in one of these five lane conundrums lined with strip malls and big box stores and housing subdivisions and you know, drive-through restaurants, recognizes that they're the most frustrating environment to drive in because not only can you not move very quickly through them, but if you want to make a logical movement, like I'm at this place, I would like to go to the place directly across the street. You might have to drive down a half a mile, wait, turn around, come back the other way. You might have to travel a mile to go 200 feet. This is what a Strode environment is like. And they are the most expensive lowest returning, most dangerous, and most disorienting and just dehumanizing types of environments that we build. And they're ubiquitous across the country. All of our cities have these types of places.
0: And I live near one of those types of places. My neighborhood is nearest road called Overland Road. And I'm enough of a tree hugger that I sometimes try to walk it. You mentioned that's difficult to drive in. Also not a, not a very pedestrian friendly environment either. I've been almost run over two or three times, the drivers aren't expecting people, even though there's sidewalks built, there's things like that. They're crosswalks, but they're rarely used and uh, it's a dangerous place. And you, you share some tragic stories, at least one tragic story of a family trying to get to the library or come from the library yeah. and, and just how these strodes build in incentives that are problematic and can be deadly. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And you, you know, your experience of the place not being safe to walk is, is again a common experience. Jeff Speck wrote the book walkable city, which is a fantastic book. And he talks about what makes a good walk. And part of a good walk is that it's safe, but not just um, safe in that you are secure in your person's, <laughs> but that it feels safe. You know, humans struggle to not just feel safe, but to have a sense of peace and purpose when you are walking along a four foot wide, five foot wide sidewalk and there's a vehicle traveling at lethal speeds mere feet away from you. It's very uh, disorienting. Try doing that with kids or pushing a stroller or what have you, and it, it's actually terrifying. But it is a common experience, it is something that we ask people to do all the time. In Springfield, Massachusetts, I was invited to give a lecture back in 2014. And the day of my lecture, I was invited to go out and walk the city with a number of people. And one of the places we walked to was the Springfield Central Library. Springfield is the home of Dr. Seuss. Uh, There's a Dr. Seuss museum and like little courtyard and it's beautiful. And you come out into this area. And across the street is this historic. And I'm not an architect; I couldn't describe the architectural style, except to say it's, it's a classic building. You know, big columns and and marble, and you know, one of these built uh, a long time ago type of iconic structures. And that's their central library. It's in the middle of a very poor neighborhood in a very poor city, but it is one of those things. And I, I think, in the true spirit of what a community library is, there's a little Dr. Seuss wing to it. You know, people of, of all ages and all demographic backgrounds and all uh, degrees of wealth can go there and improve themselves, read books, learn, partake in the things that go on. And, and that's a very beautiful thing and a very important thing for this neighborhood. But the problem with the Central Library is that out in front of it, the street, the little street that existed there has been transformed into one of these roads a high-capacity commuter route from the outskirts of town into the middle of city. And when you look at the design of this and go back through the record, which I've done now, everything about this design focuses on the engineering terms of around mobility. They describe wanting to meet a certain level of service, which is a way we describe the ability of traffic to flow quickly. They want to have plenty width in the lanes so that drivers... We'll have free-flowing conditions, very safe for drivers. But when you stood there and looked at the library, all kinds of people crossed right in front of the library. They would walk out the front door of the library, and they needed to get the other side of the street. And instead of walking a long walk to the right or a long walk to the left, waiting for permission at a signal, walking across, they would do the very human and very logical thing, which is to just walk across the street. We sat and watched lots of people do this, and it was really, really dangerous, like really dangerous. That night, I gave a lecture in the city, and when I got back to my room, I had the TV on, right where I had been earlier that day, a mom taking her daughter and her niece home from spending the evening at the library had gotten hit by a vehicle driving on State Street. The mother and the niece were injured, brought to the hospital, but the little girl, Destiny Gonzalez, who was the the age of my daughters at the time, was struck and killed. She died. And she died, we could say she died because a driver made a mistake. We we say she died because they shouldn't have crossed there. They should have walked down to the crossing. All of these things are are knowable and predictable and, and routine along the street. She died because this engineering was a mismatch between this site and this place and so i wrote about that and i talked about that and at the time i wrote about it some people in the neighborhood had been demanding changes on this street the city had been unwilling to make those changes they had you know done all the things that activists do from petitions to protests to demonstrations to all all these different things over the years multiple people have been hit and struck on this street Multiple people have been killed along this street. I included this story in the book because it is one of the clearest examples of the way engineers become very myopic in their design to the kind of obvious exclusion of what is clearly an ongoing safety problem. When the book came out last September, I started my book tour in Springfield and had this conversation again with that community. And and I've been part of an ongoing dialogue there to try to get this fixed. Unfortunately, in November then, so two months after the book came out, a library employee was leaving the library, did the thing that almost everybody does, which is walk directly across the street. She was struck and was also killed in the basically feet away from where Destiny Gonzalez was killed. A huge tragedy, but a tragedy that I think finally broke the log jam. And we now have the city getting rid of the four lanes, going down to two lanes, putting in a crossing there, spending some money to actually make this a safer place for people. But it took, you know, many lives destroyed in order to get to this.
0: And your book, while it focuses a lot on the engineering aspect, you also touch on, I found this surprising, more human aspects of life on a street, including policing. Your home state of Minnesota is, is unfortunately the home of some of our most famous policing controversies george floyd of course comes to mind but you also highlight another egregious case and that of Fernando castile and it's a it's a tragic video to watch but what was new to me from your book was was highlighting just how often mr castile had been pulled over
1: it was such a big case i think you know george floyd obviously has hit us all in in some ways but Philando Castile for me as a Minnesotan broke this bubble that Ferguson gave us Ferguson it was an instance where i think you know a lot of us just felt like whatever went down here whatever happened it should not have ended this way but there was there was a part of it that was like yeah but this wouldn't happen in Minnesota you know that's not how Minnesotans act that's not how we would perform in this way Yes, we have racial inequity and yes, we have a lot of problems, but, but we would not experience this here. And and not only, you know, have we had George Floyd, but I, I think Philando Castile really broke, you know, burst that bubble for me in a big way. When you look at Philando Castile, I, I think he'd been pulled over like 42 times. I I can't remember. It was, it was dozens.
0: 49, um, according to your 49.
1: Yeah. And he was a young man. I mean, he was, this was not an, an yeah, early a guy 30s. Who had been, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. So this is he is just a, a horrible a
0: driver? Is, is this guy just marked because of his recklessness?
1: As I was pondering this, as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that I too have been pulled over like many, many times. And, and it was it because I was reckless? And I, I had this theory applied to myself. And, and Philando Castile made me you know, broaden and make kind of more generous my application of this. I used to work for all these small towns all over Minnesota. And that meant late night meetings on weeknights. And that meant driving home through small town police traps over and over and over. And I got pulled over. I mean, I, I know that in one year I got pulled over 18, 20 times. Um, I didn't get that many tickets. I probably got one or two tickets. But the police would pull me over all the time. And they would pull me over all the time because someone driving 11 o'clock at night in a small town, going five miles or 10 miles over the speed limit, profiles really well as a drunk driver. And they were just sitting there pulling people over in a sense that ambiguous zone on the edge of town. And it was very frustrating to me because they were basically trolling. They were fishing for someone who was, was driving drunk. And I, I, you know, my wife would say, well, you shouldn't have been speeding. And I'm like, it really had nothing to do with that. I mean, I've driven the same road the same speed the same place many 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 times it's just like that time at night they're sitting there watching and i recognize that what we do in neighborhoods like Falano castile's is we go there as police officers and we troll we know and be generous with me here because i think there's a there's a self-reinforcing loop that i will get to eventually i don't want people to hear me wrong but we know that, like high crimes happen in certain neighborhoods. Certain neighborhoods have higher rates of whatever you're fishing for, drug use, homicide, gun whatever. Uh, you know, whatever that is, uh, we statistically see higher rates of that. And so when we go out to these areas and we just use the investigatory traffic stop is what it's called. the The idea that I will watch around for people doing minor traffic infractions, and I will pull them over as a pretext to doing that, I can use that as a way to make contact with people and essentially fish, troll, for things. Now, in this case, the officer thought that because of uh, Philando Castile's shape of his nose, which I don't ask me to explain this, how you would pick that out to someone driving by you or what have you, felt that he was a suspect in a, a different crime that had happened in the neighborhood. And so he followed him and of course if any police officer follows any person for any amount of time they will be able to identify something that they are violating in traffic laws that gives them a pretext to pull them over. And in this case, I can't even remember what it was. Castile had been pulled over for having his windows too tinted, having his license plate like not exactly affixed right, having a taillight out, all these things that are like not life threatening, but he had been pulled over for these things as a pretext to like investigate what was going on. And when the officer went up, he was kind of primed to think this guy was a suspect. And so he had his weapon ready to go. And when Castile turned around to reach to his back pocket for his license, he shot him. He came to the conclusion that he was reaching for a weapon and he preemptively shot him. These kind of things, let's not take the the shooting, let's back up and take the traffic part. This kind of thing is... St- standard part of policing. The idea that we would go into, quote unquote, high crime neighborhoods and do these investigatory stops using violations of traffic law as the pretext for making that stop. In terms of my book, I'm not an expert on the social justice aspects of this. I'm not an expert on the racial implications of this. As any human, I'm disturbed by people being shot and killed. As any Minnesotan, I think I'm disturbed by these things happening in my state. But what I am an expert on is traffic and the reason we have traffic laws. And I'm going to just say two things that are related to this that are important. Number one, everybody breaks traffic laws all the time. Our streets are actually designed in a way that facilitates the continual breaking of routine traffic laws. Everybody listening to this podcast has been driving along a street, a street where they were supposed to go 25 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, seeing a police officer. And their first reaction is to look down at their speedometer and go, uh-oh, uh, uh uh-oh. I'm not traveling at the right speed. Everyone who's driven has had that experience. And it's not because everyone who's listening here is a deviant and a horrible, reckless person, but because our streets encourage high speeds in places where they shouldn't. Right. Now, going through a yellow light when it's turning, accelerating through an intersection, not coming to an absolute complete stop. These are things that police officers do routinely, not let alone, you know, members of the public. So here's the second aspect of this. If you were to go and do investigatory stops in wealthy affluent neighborhoods, those places would quickly become high crime neighborhoods too. Because if you went there and pulled people over for minor traffic infractions and then use that as a pretext to search their vehicle or search their persons or interview them, you would find people who were drinking and driving and using illegal drugs and doing all kinds of things that do happen in wealthy neighborhoods as well. Uh, but we don't surveil them in the same way. I think that we have a dysfunctional relationship between the engineering profession and their design of streets and traffic enforcement. Because every time we go to an engineer and say, hey, there's excessive speeding on the street. Hey, people are driving recklessly here. Hey, this is a very dangerous place. The response of the engineer will be, well, that is an enforcement matter. That's something for the police to take care of. That's not something that I can fix in my design. When you go to the police and you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, I can sit here all day and just pull people over. Like everybody driving through here is going too fast. Everybody driving through here makes the same mistake. I can just stand here and pull people over all day. That is a design problem. And so you basically have both professions in a sense, benefiting from, the ambiguity or the fact that they can point to the other profession as being the problem, but nobody is really stepping up and addressing this. We should design streets that are safe. We should design streets where the outcome is people follow the law. We should then deploy our police to deal with people who are truly deviant, people who are really driving recklessly and disobeying the law, people who are, have a broken taillight or, a something affixed incorrectly to their bumper, you know, they should be sent tickets and given, you know, some type of citation, sure, but it doesn't need to involve pulling them over and having this type of uh, really dangerous interaction. I think the engineering profession is complicit in what I think has become like the laziness of the the driving enforcement routine. And I think engineers have a responsibility to fix their part of it.
0: In addition to policing, you also follow the money. And in an age when infrastructure is supposed to be the one thing that unites us, the one big bipartisan <laughs> bill that's gotten through, yeah, you you highlight uh, that some of those problems from the battle days still exist. You highlight a project from my old neck of the woods uh, near Shreveport, Louisiana. I grew up in what we lovingly call the Arklatex, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas coming together. Got my TV out of Shreveport growing up. The numbers here were surprising to me. I've driven on this this stretch of I-49 when it goes away and goes into town. You highlighted a $700 million project that's going to do wonderful things.
1: In my position here at Strong Towns, I have been really fortunate to have now people sending me things all the time. It's tough to discern sometimes what is a story and what is not, what is worth my attention and what is not. And I I know I fail in that a lot, and I'm sure there's things people send me that I don't pay attention to that I should. One of those was this project in Shreveport where people were sending me this stuff saying, all right, here's this uh, poor neighborhood, largely Black, historic Black families and historic Black neighborhood. The state is looking to, with federal money, run a highway through the middle of this neighborhood, a la the worst projects of the 1950s. They're going to take everybody's houses. They're going to kick them out. They're going to dislocate them. They're not really compensating them all that much for this loss. And to make matters worse, this project is like 700 million, uh, just an extraordinary amount of money, more money than it would take to fix every derelict bridge in the entire state they're going to use to, to build this one little tiny section of roadway. They're doing it to accommodate 3,600 through trips a day. There are alleys in major cities that get more traffic than this through, through traffic than this roadway is expected to get for a state that uh, you know, has a multi-billion dollar backlog of road maintenance. I dismiss this. I said, there's there's no way. the, The people who are sending this to me are zealous advocates, and they're not giving me an honest representation of this picture. But then I wound up in Shreveport, and I was invited to visit this neighborhood. Not only is all of that true, but it's even worse than that. I met the beautiful people in Allendale, people who, in response to this sort of Damocles hanging over their head. For decades, this highway has been scheduled to go through here and it's driven down property values. It's made it so nobody wants to uh, to buy their homes. They still have managed to create a neighborhood out of this. They've done it, uh, and I'm gonna say this and this is gonna sound a little bit like hippie-ish, but they've done it with love. They do it by going out and planting beautiful flowers in their front yards, creating gardens in the empty vacant spots painting up the fronts of their houses. They do it in true, you know, they have a Christian fellowship there. I don't think this is an exclusively a Christian thing, but that's the faith that I'm most familiar with. And so I can say in like the best of the Christian tradition of loving your neighbor and caring for them and, and trying to be a good neighbor, uh, they exude that in spades. I mean, they have a place called the friendship house that they gather and, and talk about how they can help each other. This is a beautiful beautiful neighborhood full of some of the most astounding people I've ever met. In contrast to this, you have in Shreveport the Committee of 100, which if that sounds, you know, a little bit Davos-ish, it literally is a by invitation list of what you would consider like the 100 most important most connected people in the community. Who's the top banker? Who's the top insurance salesman? Who's the big landowner? Who's the big developer? And they've invited all these people and they have been advocating zealously for this highway to go through kind of in opposition to the neighborhood. The Committee of 100 has not only all the insiders, but lots of money. They fundraise. They've got six-figure marketing budgets. They go out and try to uh, sell The community and the politicians and the state and federal governments on this project. While at the same time, the the people in the neighborhood have tools like prayer and fellowship and kindness. It's really, you know, on paper, a huge mismatch. But the reality is, is the, the neighborhoods have the advantage of being right, of having this project be ridiculous. No group of people, not you know, directly uh, thinking they're going to benefit from this, would look at a seven hundred million dollar project in the state of Louisiana, where they have a multi billion dollar backlog of existing roads, you know, roads that they've already built that they can't fix. They don't have the money to fix, and say what we need more than anything is to build this short two and a half mile extension so that three thousand six hundred cars a day can get to their destination slightly more quickly. No, no sane person would think that was right. We could poll people in communities all over the country, give them all the facts of this thing and say, what do you think? And it would be 99% plus would say, this is a dumb project. We should never do it. So why is it even being discussed? And the reason it's being discussed is because there's a federal transportation bill. It sloshes money out through the system. There's a state DOT department. They have a backlog queue of projects when the money comes in they do the next project in the queue there's a local list of people who will directly benefit from this money being spent that are lobbying for it to happen and it goes against every good financial decision we say we want to make it goes against every like human decision and with our society now really primed around things like justice and equity It really violates every precept of what we think like a just equitable outcome looks like. It is one of the most bizarre projects I've ever seen. Here's a sad thing though, John, and I'm gonna say this without any hyperbole, as I've come to know and understand Shreveport, and I included them in the book because I feel like they're a great example of everything that's wrong with transportation funding today. I have come across and learned about more and more and more situations that maybe not this egregious, but very, very close to this, in El Paso, in Portland, in New Orleans, in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, the list just goes on and on and on and on. It's convinced me not only that we need to oppose these projects and have a way to to stand up and, and stop them, but this entire system needs to be scrapped and we need to reimagine what the role of top-down finance of transportation is in this country, because we approved the bipartisan infrastructure bill to great fanfare. Like you said, it's the only thing we agree on. I think that it is the most out-of-touch bill with the way people actually live their lives and actually would like to see their government function that we've passed in the last two decades.
0: I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh... True words were never spoken.
1: (laughs) When the the president proposed the American jobs plan, he identified 178,000 miles of roadway in poor condition. The plan would upgrade or fix 12% of that 178,000, and it would do it over the next decade. When the plan got to Congress, Republicans said, this is way too big. And some of the Democrats said, this is way too big. They whittled it down. They made it smaller. And so you have a president's plan, this bold, transformative investment in infrastructure that can't even maintain more than 12% of the roads that are already in bad condition. Let me put this a different way. A decade from now, when this money is spent, we will have more roads in poor condition than we have now at the beginning of the spending. That's what that means. And that bill was too big for Congress. We narrowed it down. What that should tell everybody is that we have no competent plan, no realistic idea of how we're going to maintain the infrastructure we've already built.
0: And we're building projects like the, the Shreveport extension, more. right? That, yeah, that, every so day. Our priorities are a little bit off, it seems. Yes. We're approaching the end of our time. Let's return to that temptation of speed with a quick lightning round. I'll give you some. Some issues, some topics. You let me know. Good idea, bad idea. Maybe 10 seconds on why that's the case. All right. Elon Musk, digging
1: tunnels. Stupid idea. I mean, it just doesn't understand geometry of traffic flow. Scooters. They're everywhere. Love. Love scooters. We need to be good neighbors to each other and be respectful of each other. But it's a great idea. High-speed rail. I love it as an extension of success. We don't have the success that justifies it in almost every place today. Roundabouts. Uh, why would we ever put in another traffic signal? We should have roundabouts in almost every one of those places.
0: Which ties to my
1: next one. Stoplights. Burn them all down. Tear, tear, tear them down and recycle the uh, the materials. So let's let's maybe go a little more. I think that was one of those shocking
0: <laughs> ones. Let's go we'll give you a minute on that. Why uh it's going to bring carnage.
1: Yeah. Traffic signals tie into the speed, right? We only need signals because we have high speeds. We only need high speeds because we have this obsession with mobility. If we can lower speeds, we'll have safer environments, we'll have better places, we'll get more investment. And by the way, if we can get rid of the traffic signals, even at low speeds, you'll get to your destination more quickly. Traffic signals actually delay and make travel speeds greater in cities than if we just had free-flowing intersections with low speeds. Interesting.
0: Okay, last one. Professional engineer licensing review boards. Ha.
1: <laughs> Disband them. I, I, I'm in a squabble with mine and I wish they would I think they have an important role and function, but when they get political and they get beyond that, they become a nuisance to society.
0: And how has your case, has it wrapped up yet or is it still ongoing?
1: Um, we're waiting for summary judgment right now on a couple of things. Depending on how that goes, there will either be a hearing or an appeal. <laughs> Hopefully the summary judgment goes in in our favor, which I think it should. I feel like... a. a a judge looking at this is going to say the state has certain authorities, yes, but they've way, way, way gone political on this one. And there's no, no justification for it. So hopefully over soon.
0: And for background, this is, you were a little slow paying some of your yearly fees, but there's a mechanism for paying late, you paid late. But uh, yeah. shockingly, not all engineers are thrilled with your work and someone <laughs> filed a complaint, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, that's right. I don't practice engineering, so I don't need a license to do anything that I do. You know, I moved and I didn't get the renewal notice and I forgot to renew my license. And when I found out, I went and renewed. During the gap in licensure, someone filed a complaint that I was using the title professional engineer, which I'm not allowed to do without a license. I was fully qualified to do it. I just hadn't filed the paperwork renewal. I agreed. I said I would pay a fine. The board of licensure wants me to, in addition to paying a fine, uh, they wanted to censure me. They want uh, me to agree that I misled the public, that I lied, that I was dishonest, that I committed a, a fraud uh, on them uh, and on uh, the public by, you know, using this title when my paperwork wasn't current. It's really a bizarre case. And I think, you know, reasonable people would have resolved it very, very quickly. Again, it, it kind of shames me being from Minnesota that this is a Minnesota licensing board, because I would like to think that we are a state of reasonable people, you know, but as Garrison Keeler said, uh, you know, only half of us are above average or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the barbers strike
0: back, uh, right? How dare you yeah. point out flaws in the system? Tell us. How do people find Strong Towns? What can they find there? And why should they
1: find it? Strong Towns, my blog turned into a full site where we publish three articles every weekday. Uh, we've got three different podcast streams. Uh, we've got a lot of video courses you can take. We do events all over the country. You can get plugged into all of that at strongtowns.org. Plug in wherever you you want Most of our stuff is Creative Commons licensed, so it's free to use and distribute. And, and, uh, you know, we just tell people, take our stuff and, and use it for good in your place. That's what we're hoping people do with it. Chuck Maroon with Strong
0: Towns, the author of Confessions
1: of a Recovering Engineer. So great to have you today. John, it's been great to, uh, to spend time with you to start the day off like this. I always, uh, it's early in the morning when we're recording this, not super early, early for me, I'm not a morning person. It's always fun to get into the office and have a, a good conversation like this to get your brain flowing and, and things uh, ready to kick off a day. So thanks so much for what you do. And I love Front Porch Republic. So thanks for the podcast.
0: Well, thank you. We're glad you're here. Drive safe, walk safe.
1: Take care. <laughs> Likewise, friend, take care.
0: Our thanks again to Chuck Maroon. Get more Chuck at StrongTowns.org. And until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home. Find your.